I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision making. Mapfre Re is a top 20 global reinsurer, but it probably doesn't have the public profile that this size should command. Given my insurance work experience in the Spanish market, I thought this was a wrong that needed writing. Mapfre has many peculiarities, not least that it is one of the few reinsurers to still be part of a major global insurance group decades after it became fashionable to divest and separate insurance from reinsurance. It also looks after the reinsurance buying for its global top 20 insurer parent. This gives it a unique perspective of the market, which I think you will find refreshing. Mapfre CEO Eduardo Pérez de Lema is a frank and eloquent interviewee, and in this episode, he gives us an unambiguous view on what he is expecting from the 1 1 renewals and the long term sustainable partner philosophy at the heart of his firm's strategy. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Eduardo, thank you so much for giving me the time. I'm sure you're incredibly busy as we're coming up to the one-run renewal season. I'd like to ask you just to start, set Matt a bit in context. In some ways, I suppose you'd see Matt is almost like an old-fashioned idea that when I was starting broking, all the big international insurance groups used to have a reinsurance arm, you know, Zurich Re, AXA Re, Chubb Re, Royal Re. It was a very big list. And there was a process of divesting those and spinning them off and becoming independent and, and maybe insurers sticking to insurance and reinsurers sticking to reinsurance. But you didn't follow that model. So can you tell us a bit about that history, about why you decided to do things differently? Well, thank you, Mark, and uh, pleasure to be with you and having the opportunity to discuss a little bit about what we do and what we are. Well, actually, that, that is a question, and uh, we have been pretty unique for some time. It was very common, as you said, in the late 90s and before our time, I guess, but uh, it changed a lot at that time. And uh, actually, it was a debate in Mafre at that time because it was true that all insurance groups were divesting from reinsurance for different reasons some of them for good reasons. Of course, this is a volatile industry. This is a not so easy business. And it's not easy to understand within insurance groups that tend to be less volatile than we are. But in our case, we, we took a different decision. I, I would assume mainly because we genuinely think and thought at the time that Mafre could add a lot of value to the group. And that's what it is. 
And that's because we believe it's a business that, that helped us a lot, uh, of course, based on a very specific business model that we agreed at the time. And knowing that you have to be different to other reinsurers if you want to be successful with this model. So we decided that we would continue, that there was a space for us, that probably clients would value having someone like Mafferi in on their panels and what we could provide. And then trying to avoid certain things that happen to others. And in our case was that to find a business model that is acceptable for an insurance group, which in our case implied uh, to have uh, volatility, but that being relatively limited, that we could add diversification to the group and not adding additional group to what the group already had in the balance sheet. Of course, that implies that we let some business go that is profitable or can potentially be profitable, but that doesn't fit into the appetite of the group. And it gave us the opportunity to have a group of specialist people dealing with the reinsurance of the group, adding the possibility of increasing the retention of profitable group business in the group, diversifying it with non-group business. So at the end of the time, we found a business model that made a lot of sense for Mafra and uh, it has been successful over time. And we are seeing now that other groups are going back to include reinsurance into their insurance portfolios. And uh, I think for us, it went well and it was good for, for the company so and for the market. So it's part of that wider trend that those same international groups to centralize the reinsurance buying globally through an entity. And, and that is part of the role that you play as Matt Re. We play that role that came later, not at the time when we decided to maintain the reinsurance operation. It has been always the case in Spain, but for the international group, it came later. And it was a move that uh, we could do more efficiently having also a reinsurance company and a reinsurance portfolio in, in the company. We followed that or probably led that movement internationally, but uh, it helped having this expertise in the group and the diversification that Mafferi could provide. And so generally in terms of appetite, you said there that you're not looking for some of the really high volatility end of reinsurance. And is it right that your composition of your portfolio is more proportional than others? It has everything in there. We have proportional, non-proportional, facultative. We do a little bit of everything. And what we try to find is a balance in the portfolio and also a balance that is also consistent with the client needs. If we are relatively agnostic on proportional, non-proportional, it's if the client needs proportional, we design things that are sustainable for them and that make sense for them and sustainable for us and from a margin point of view. It is true that uh, being more proportional gives you less volatility, but it also implies that we don't write certain territories. Let it be because they are very volatile or because they are accumulating to group exposures and certain lines of business that are very volatile and that would go beyond the risk appetite of the group. It has evolved over time. It, uh, we have been diversifying into lines of business, but uh, it's true. We have more proportional business in our portfolio than average, I would say. It also helps that we have a certain cost structure that allows us to do certain business with a lower margin and less volatility. So that's correct. While we're on just explaining exactly what you do and where you fit in with the Macfrey Group, there was a change to Macfrey Global Risk, which is now no longer a standalone business and is as writing on your paper and part of your side of the group. Can you just explain exactly how that relationship between global risks and Mafre works? Well, Mafre Global Risk in Mafre is a separate unit. It's an autonomous unit, and they are focused on underwriting specialty insurance business in the group. It's, uh, of course, very often that lines of business are channeled through reinsurance, but it's in, we consider it to be an insurance business of the group. When we decided to restructure, we analyzed the Mafre Global Risk in the group, and we saw Two big different uh, areas of business. One was uh, what they have been doing for the Mafra Group, which is effectively being a lead market on the large industrial risk and specialty risk 
in the markets where Mafra is operating, that is Spain, Latin America, Turkey, in many markets across the world. And then they had what they called their international portfolio, which was same type of business, but written in their international network, which to a big extent was very close or effectively a DNF portfolio, if we talk in London market standards. What we realized is that we had a lead position in what we call the Mafre business, where Mafre is uh, operating. And we had a very following position in other markets where we really were not adding that much value in addition to be a pure capacity provider. And uh, that happened at a time also where the market was as it was. And, and uh, we didn't see that we were giving that much value to the clients being just a following market. So we decided that uh, Mafre Global Risk would focus on the business that is leading business in, in the areas where Mafra operates and providing capacity and service to the clients in those regions. And the other part of that, we decided to transfer into Mafra Re as a facultative portfolio, which fits better into the volatility management that we have in Mafra Re. And within that, then we decided to stay in part of the business and discontinue others uh, just because it did not fit exactly on our strategy. Let's talk about Mafra Re's current strategic underwriting plan in today's market. Tell me all about it. What's the plan? Well, in general, what I would say is we are in a changing moment in the market. That's very clear. And of course, across the industry in the reinsurance portfolio and in the reinsurance market, I would say we are not profitable as an industry, as a market. And we have been doing a full review of our portfolio and of our reality. And and the outcome of that uh, review is that we are comfortable with what we are doing, with our strategy, with uh, the clients that we are serving, the markets that we're serving and the lines of business that we are doing. In general terms, we are comfortable with that. And we don't need to make a material change on the company. So we don't need to restructure the Mafrerie, which is great news in our view. So that is, uh, I don't know if others are in that position, but definitely we are not. Of course, what we see is that the level of profitability that we get from the portfolio and it's consistent with the industry is not enough. So we are taking action in terms of improving profitability of the portfolio. And that means specific actions, but we are not changing the the underwriting policy of the company and the strategic direction of the company. We are more adapting a little bit uh, the pricing and the structure of the treaties that needs to be done. So, So overall, not a big change. Where are you seeing the best opportunities to make those changes where the market is allowing you to make the changes that you know you want to make when you look at your portfolio? What sort of lines and what sort of territories are the most cooperative at the moment? I would say we are right now starting or in the middle of the renewals. And I would say there is a pretty much a consensus that across the board, we will see improvements in the portfolio. I don't see any market or any business where where at least we are not getting some improvement. I would say there are certain lines of business where the improvement is more accelerated. Of course, those having losses in the past, uh, of course, they're accelerating more in terms of adjustment. Of course, some lines of business, uh, if you go into more into the specialty side and into the large industrial risk side, of course, the results have been very bad in the recent years. And that is probably actually there is a capacity shortage in those markets more than in others. But um, again, there are certain lines of business that we know right now they are very attractive, but don't fit into our strategy. So we are not deploying capital on that part. And we are more or less maintaining the scope of the portfolio, but improving the profitability. And I guess we will get it pretty much across the board. And uh, of course, there are more improvements in areas more affected by losses. Just to clarify your view of current rate adequacy, do you think how much further do you have to push on rate to get to the profitability, the sort of returns that you think are are fair for the risk you're taking? 
Well, it, it varies, of course, a lot uh, between business lines, individual clients, and uh, not every client is the same situation and we need to address it overall and not all territories are the same. I, I would say that there are examples to look at. And if you see, and it's very widely covered uh, press, always the, the cat side of business and the cat Excel business. And uh, there, if you see territories there, they have been constantly going down for the last 18 years, since 2002, probably. So there, there is a, a lot of room. If, if we wanted to go back to where we were in 2002, 2003, probably we would need to double pricing or triple pricing, which is not going to happen. Then we know that. But uh, if you see, for example, in Europe, to get back to the pricing where we were in 2015, which was definitely not a hard market in 2015, we probably need a 15% risk-adjusted price increase just to get to a level where we were in 2015, which again, it was not definitely not a hard market. I don't know if we will be getting there. I would expect that uh, it would be reasonable to get there, but we don't know what the market will feel like. I think there is a need of adjustment across the board. And for us, everybody's talking about cats and that's a normal thing because it's uh, on the press. But for us, even more important than that is that we get the underlying, the rest of the non-cat business also to a level of profitability that makes sense at all. And we have additional problems these days that would need us to need more adjustment because if you just think about the investment income that we are getting today compared to what we were getting three, four, five years ago, probably that needs to be able to get a return on equity that it makes sense for our investments. We need to reduce the combined ratio significantly to get a decent return. And we made some calculations for reinsurance of our profile, maybe five years ago, we could live with a combined ratio of 97, 98%. We could give a decent return on equity. Probably we need to be below 95 today to get a similar return on equity. And we need to translate that into rate at some point. Uh, we can't live anymore on anything different than the technical result. And how long do you think it would take to get to that sub 95 combined that you need for your returns, do you think? And do you think the market's going to let you get there? Will, will it give you time to do that? I don't know. I, I wish I would know. I would hope that for next year we are there, but I don't know at this point in time. I think we need a pretty aggressive movement across the market because I would be very concerned if it would be a Maverick problem that we have uh, when we see the level of profitability that we are seeing. Probably we are actually a little bit better than the average of the market. So I think that the whole market needs to get to a point where it makes sense and where it is sustainable over time. I think there is no point in going up and down every second year. What we need to see is that we reach a level that is technically acceptable for everyone. And from that, we try to build that. In your Q3 results, which are just out recently, you said you would have a strong focus on clarifying and potentially limiting cover during the reinsurance renewal discussions. So what, what are you referring to there? What sort of covers are you most keen to clarify or limit coming up for the renewals? Well, in our case, uh, I think... There are three main areas where, where probably we will be focusing. And uh, good news is that I think there is a big consensus on that. And actually, it's a big consensus both on the client side and for us as reinsurers. I think the first one for us is to limit the silent cyber exposures. We are very concerned about that. And uh, that there is something that we have been working already for a year and a half or so. That's the first one. The second one is, of course, pandemic exclusions, especially on the non-life side, which is one. And the other one is to clarifying the scope of uh, event definitions, mainly on the Cadexel side. And in all those three, I think uh, there will be consensus also with the clients. Uh, there will be a differentiation in how you will 
address certain things, but uh, I think we all agree that, uh, especially on the non-life side, the pandemic risk is of a nature that we simply can't cover that reasonably. We can't give a promise to cover something that is of a systemic nature that simply we can cope with that. I think for both parties, uh, reinsurers and buyers, it's extreme importance that it's clear what we are covering and not, and that in the case of event definitions, in some cases, it's, it's, it's so unclear that it's causing problems. And of course, silent cyber exposure. I think cyber is a line of business that has to grow and expand, but we need to be aware of the risks that we are taking and modeling and controlling it. How much is that COVID-19 uncertainty about, obviously, we have a loss event that is out there now and it's running still and we're in second lockdowns around the world. How much is the uncertainty around what is currently being insured or not insured or ambiguously being litigated? How much of a factor is that coming into this renewal? Well, I think uh, there is bigger uncertainties coming on the place. Uh, I think uh, the good news is that the uncertainty in terms of what we are covering or not is reducing over time because I think most of the insurance companies or all insurance companies in the world, we're taking action to limit the exposure that we're getting and clarifying that we are not covering certain things. So probably over time, the risk uh, of having bad surprises is reducing and we have to work on that side. But going into renewal and especially on places where there is doubts about coverage and what claims we actually have on our portfolios, it will be a hot topic of discussion. And we have many renewals where there is a claim presented by clients. There are renewals where they don't even know if they will be having claims on their insurance portfolios, not to talk about the reinsurance coverage. So it's a lot of uncertainty and we need to be smart and sensible and professional to deal with that. And uh, I've been talking to some clients uh, in recent days where we said, well, you presented a claim, you know that we disagree on what you are presenting, and probably we will end up having a discussion or ending up at an arbitration or litigation on that side. But we both know that we need each other for continue doing business. You need the capacity that we are providing. We need the business that we are doing. So let's try to separate one thing from the other. Let's talk about renewals on a normal way. Of course, if COVID was covered, it was covered and we are paying that. Where there are doubts, probably we have to have a a conversation, what would be your renewal? Ignoring COVID and then see what we do with COVID, or we will decide over time what kind of relationship we will have if we end up paying a COVID claim or not. So I think it will be a tough discussion and we need to be empathic and reasonable. Uh, I think clients having a COVID loss, most of them will need the capacity that we are providing and we need the clients. So we need to come to sensible and professional dialogues and and is that because you're perhaps slightly a higher percentage proportional reinsurer than others? Is that why you're pushing terms and conditions more than other things? Because it is one of the, other than seeding commission, it's one of the only levers that you have in the dialogue. Yeah, well, uh, at the end of the day, we need, uh, there, there are th- things in terms of conditions that are applicable to proportional and non-proportional. We need to have clarity of what we cover and we need uh, as an insurance provider. Also, uh, we do it ourselves as Muffer, as an insurer, to have clarity and also to clarify to our clients that we are covering what we can cover. And uh, the limitation in terms of silence, cyber or in terms of pandemics, it's simply that we need to make sure that the client understands that we are not covering something that we simply economically can't cover. And, and that's what we want to do. Of course, in terms of proportional covers, you are much closer to the scene to what the insurance portfolio is doing than on non-proportional and if you talk about CAT and you need to be very close to the client and what they are doing with the underlying portfolio. And and there we want to be helpful and provide solutions as well. Do you think sometimes a proportional reinsurer just has to follow the fortunes of the seed simply? At what point do you think you can agree to disagree? 
No, of course, uh, you can always agree and disagree, but it's true that as a proportional reinsurer, uh, you follow the fortunes of your client. And, and I think it's the same also as a non-proportional reinsurer. At the end of the day, you need, uh, I th- we understand reinsurance as a partnership. So of course, it's a capital tool, it's a risk management tool, but it's a partnership and we are sharing business and actually at the end of the day, we share the interest. It's not uh, that we have a completely different interest. We are sharing the interest. And then, of course, we follow the fortunes. If business is bad for the insurance company, it's bad for us. And if it's good, it's good for both. So at the end of the day, we are the same boat. Eduardo, I suppose, would it be right to presume that in this market, you're using the opportunity of this hardening market to improve the profitability of your portfolio rather than prioritizing growth? I think it's uh, it's compatible thing. It's a compatible thing. I think at the end of the day, of course, priority is now and always has been to have a decent uh, level of profitability. But at the end of the day, as a company, we want to grow, and I think. Uh, all market players want to grow. In, in our company, we have always said a company that is not willing and prepared to grow is uh, prepared to disappear. As a company, you always want to grow and you want to become bigger. And it's, it's part of the human nature. Of course, if growing is on the expense of disappearing because you are unprofitable, then we won't grow. But I think uh, what we need to make sure is that we have a sustainable portfolio, a sustainable business. And on that basis, to do as much as our financial capacity allows us to do and our clients let us do with them. So that's at the end of the day. So in the long run, we always want to grow. And we don't understand that there is uh, any discrepancy on that. If it's not profitable, we we are not in the business and that's it. And uh, from that point on, we want to grow and develop. Eduardo, being, as we described, that unique reinsurance entity that's part of a very large international insurance group, and with that portfolio that you have that partly is in-house, does that give you a different view of the way of hardening markets and hardening retro markets and other things, given the large spread that you've got and the large financial resources you have? Does it just affect your mentality in terms of how you navigate things compared to different players? No, really for us, um, we see a hardening of the market as positive, being buyers and being sellers of reinsurance. I think at the end of the day, what we need is to make a technically sustainable market. And I think that is good for buyers, for sellers, for brokers. At the end of the day, we need something that can survive over time. And when we are buyers, uh, we are happy that the market hardens as long as it's applicable to the whole of the industry. And I think we don't see when we buy reinsurance, we don't see reinsurance will provide you a competitive advantage in terms of pricing. At the end of the day, for us, reinsurance, when we buy reinsurance is for capital management, for risk management, for volatility management, for product development with partners for all the classic beauties that reinsurance has over time, but not as a competitive advantage because a bad portfolio, a bad price portfolio, you won't fix it through reinsurance. You won't change a bad portfolio buying more reinsurance, less reinsurance, cheaper reinsurance, or more expensive reinsurance. You buy reinsurance for a different reasons, and it's part of your risk model and your strategy, strategy over time. So as buyers, we are fine that the market overall pardons, that we get to a technical sustainability. And of course, we will all benefit of that. So we don't change in that regard. So you're much more like a very consistent buyer of retro as a reinsurer, for example. You're not like perhaps some of the, we describe them as the, the faster moving Bermudian reinsurers that retain more some years and buy a lot more when it's cheaper and, and retain a lot more when it's more expensive. You're far more consistent. You don't view it as, that, as a kind of game that you can trade in and out of. 
Well, for us, uh, we are a big uh, retro buyer. We are probably among the biggest in the market and it's part of our strategy and it's part of our business model. We were talking earlier when we decided that we would stay in reinsurance being part of an insurance group and that implied a certain level of volatility and a certain level of risk that we wanted to take. And we buy a lot of reinsurance and a lot of retro. And in that regard, when we buy retro, what we tend to say to our markets and is our retro program is closer to a traditional reinsurance program of an insurance group than to a pure retro program. And our attitude when we buy retro is not the attitude of uh, some other players, which we respect a lot, but they play a different game because they have a different company and a different strategy. In our case, we try to find something that is designed there for risk management, for capital management purposes. And it's a long-term view. And you won't see us changing and shopping around in the market on our retro program as we don't do on our reinsurance program. We you won't see us buying opportunistically products that we consider that they won't be sustainable over time. And we had the opportunity over the last few years where there were certain products that today are not anymore available that were very looked very nice. But uh, we, when you analyze that and say, well, we could buy that today and uh, be lucky or not that to recover more and less. But in our long-term strategy, it doesn't make sense for us to buy something that we know will disappear. Because when we buy reinsurance, there are two key elements that we take in mind, uh, or among others. But one of it is that uh, those that we place their, our insurance with are able and willing to pay when the moment comes, and it will come. We At some point, we will trigger recoveries. But even as important as that is that uh, they are there available when, after a claim, that they are willing and able to renew the capacity that we are providing to the market. So when we buy opportunistically with opportunistic players on our side, they most probably will be able to pay the claims. Uh, we don't have big issues today in terms of solvency. But uh, what for us doesn't work is someone that is coming in and out. And we will be going coming in and out the market uh, uh, when we buy retro. One other thing is, of course, if there is a certain point in time due to hardening that certain parts of the program don't make economic sense anymore, we will increase our retention, but it won't be an opportunistic move. It will be just simple economics. And, if, and there are certain parts of the problem that at some point we, they really become uneconomical. But that's a different question. It's not that we will be opportunistically doing different. So Eduardo, I suppose going into this renewal as a buyer of retro, you, you expect less volatility that you don't expect to be treated as, as someone who is an opportunistic buyer. You, you get a better deal you, you would expect. I would expect, and I think we have been treated differently because we treated our our partners differently over time. So probably we were not the most efficient, I would say, in terms of uh, what we bought in other moments of the cycle, and uh, we will be treated fairly, I think. I, I would expect that there will be some kind of hardening as across the industry, there will be some kind of hardening, but I don't see us being treated as a traditional opportunistic retro buyer. And I think we won't be. We don't have the quotes yet, but uh, we have a long-term experience with all our markets and we will be treated a little bit different. Obviously, we're in this hardening market, which is an opportunity for different people to, to raise capital and to enter the game. Do you think some of these capital raisings that we've seen so far been defensive, as in to re reinforce balance sheets against losses? Or do you think they've been genuinely aggressive to really help growth into the harder market? Well, of course, that's a question more for those that rise the capital. <laughs> but uh, I would imagine there are both sides. I, I don't see a lot of capital rising for real growth. 
I personally think that most of it have been to fix other issues that uh, maybe, but I don't know on specific cases. But uh, what we didn't have in the, in the industry was a lot of, uh, lack of capital in the recent years. Probably it was more the opposite in certain parts. So I don't think that there is a need of much more capital in the for most of the players and definitely not for players of our profile to be able to even grow the business. We all think uh, reserves. I, I would imagine, and uh, I don't know the details of it. Uh, it's probably, and going back, to what we were talking a minute ago is that some of the capital rising is to replace some opportunistic retro buying that they have been doing over time and that disappeared altogether. Because uh, at the end of the day, that was a capital substitute that is disappearing. And if they want to maintain their market presence, they probably need more capital. But uh, it, that's speculation and probably you need to, <laughs> to talk a little bit to those that are in that situation. Great, I will do. So some of the capital we know, of course, is definitely for growth because it's completely new on clean balance sheets, what we'd call the class of 2020. Where do you think some of those brand new insurers and reinsurers are going to succeed in what sort of markets? Some of the opportunity seems to be particularly in specialty and in wholesale in, in, in the US. And What I would expect is those markets to be very, very niche because at the, on the broader, uh, at least on the reinsurance market, on the broader one, I think established players, I think we are all there. I don't see anyone on the, at least on the business that we tend to do, I don't see anyone withdrawing significantly from that. So I, I think it will be more specialty related thing. Some will be on definitely on the more DNF side and excess of surplus lines part of the US there. There is a capacity shortage. Actually, we, we exited that line ourselves. So there is less capacity in the market for those and, uh, and for sure there is an opportunity there, maybe for some retro purchases and some retro markets that will be there. But I think it will be very niche, at least for the time being. Now you've taken over the London market portfolio. I remember as a journalist five or six years ago, reporting on potential story that uh, Matt Frame might have been interested in Lloyd's business and the Lloyd's syndicate. Is that something you would rule out, particularly now that Lloyd's is reforming and changing and modernizing? Is that something that might appeal to you for your London market business? I remember those stories and they come up uh, regularly because we are in conversations always with Lloyds and to understand what their strategy is and what they are doing. And uh, we have been doing that forever and will continue to do that. And at a given moment in time, it's true that uh, when Mafra Global Risk had a different strategy, they were considering as an alternative. It was never really considered, uh, was close to happen, but it was an alternative and we keep uh, talking to Lloyds. With the current strategy of Mafra Global Risk and of Mafra Re and the group in general, I don't see anything coming soon because uh, for the approach that Mafre Global Risk has is leveraging a lot the network of insurance companies and licenses that Mafre has. And uh, in that regard, one of the big advantages of Lloyd's, we don't need that. As reinsurers, uh, we have a big network of licenses as well. So we don't need that. Of course, in Lloyd's, there are many good things that you can do there, but I don't see that in the current strategy of Mafre to be in Lloyd's. Right. Okay. And of course, you already have the rating as well, so you don't need that either. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, I'm sure you're down in Madrid, Eduardo, and Madrid is establishing itself as an insurtech hub. How's Matt Frey repositioning itself to make the most of this insurtech phenomenon that we've seen in the last, particularly emerging in the last four or five years? 
we are in contact and uh, the good thing is that we are in many markets across the world and, and in some of them where there is a very significant presence and hub of insure tech. I think as, as reinsurers, uh, we, and I know that there are other reinsurers that have a different strategy and a different approach to things because also they have different resources. In our case, one thing is on all that space, Mafra as a group is doing a lot of things and they are working a lot because uh, as insurers and, uh, and that's where the main focus is. But on our side, uh, what we are doing is uh, if we see projects that are attractive, we are trying to support them with what we do best, which is providing them capacity and capital through reinsurance to support uh, growing business models and demands where we believe they make sense. And actually, we, we have a certain budget of uh, premium that we are prepared to devote to those kinds of developments and saying, well, if there is an, an attractive project where we are prepared to take risk, it's riskier than others, of course, because it's a completely new business, but we are prepared to support through reinsurance and we are doing a lot of on, on that side. And that's what the most uh, that we can do as reinsurance. And of course, uh, then the group has its own strategy as insurance group uh, supporting and developing that kind of things. On the other side, there is one part uh, that uh, on this technological and, and digital transformation world that we are trying to support a lot, which is not as much on the talking about insure tech or selling with new models. But uh, what we are trying to do is to invest a lot in improving the efficiency of our industry. We have an issue as an in the reinsurance market, but also as insurers, that we are not using the technology enough to work with each other, I think. Uh, and we are supporting that in, and investing in things where we are improving efficiency, especially in things that are not adding any value to the chain. And that's uh, why we are investing in B3I, we're investing in the Richlicon initiative, we are investing in all these kind of things. Because if you look at this, most of the time we are exchanging accounts, we are doing the underwriting as we were doing 40 years ago. We are sending a submission and we are sending accounts and we are typing it in, in the broker, in the, in, in the clients uh, as a student. We as reinsurers, when we retrocede again, everything manual. And there is so much room of improvement in increasing efficiency that we are investing a lot on that. And, uh, but that's a different topic, indirectly related, but uh, a different topic. So do you think yeah, the really, it's almost that these things are the, the core is those data standards that we could all be using so that everything appears magically into your system from your sedent and presumably from the broker into that sedent and, and then from a reinsurance broker into your account to your retrocessionaires as well. Do you think it's it's really all about core data standards and making sure that perhaps like with RushLicon that we can build these standards and actually all adopt them and then reap the efficiency? I think it, we need to do that. I, when you think about... Um... Of course, on the accounting side and uh, balance uh, in exchange, I think there is no value that uh, that we have all our accounting standards and accounting systems uh, that don't communicate to each other. When at the end of the day, the reinsurance program that we may buy or sell may be as sophisticated as we want on the, from a structural point of view. But at the end of the day, we're seeing premiums, we're paying claims, we're paying commissions and taxes and so on. So to find a standard to exchange that information should be relatively easy if we want to do that. And it would say, a lot of cost and expense uh, and the bank has that for decades already they are exchanging uh, those kind of things and, and it works but even on the underwriting side we have our underwriting platform munich swiss hanover all the regions have their underwriting platform and then we have the brokers that each other have their own pl platform at the end of the day the value is not uh, in that what a broker provides to the client when we use a broker we don't use it for them to send their accounts we use them for many other things that they are providing to us and if we could uh, have a placement platform and an underwriting platform that can talk to each other 
we would save a lot of time and effort. And that would not uh, be in detriment of anyone. So we need to invest a lot of that because efficiency is one of the key things. I have to admit in Mafrerie, we are a little bit obsessed with efficiency and cost, but uh, because uh, we think it's uh, one of the key areas where we can be competitive over time. I don't think that we will be able to be better underwriters than the good ones. We try to be as lead as good as the best ones. But uh, if we are able to do as good underwriting as the best ones and doing it a little bit cheaper from an expense point of view, we will be competitive in the market. And that's why it's an obsession. And and I think we, we need to work on on that side. Yes, I mean, I remember covering the launch of the Russia Economy Initiative, which was pro- more than 10 years ago, probably. Why do you think it's taking so long? Obviously, as you were saying, the banks have had SWIFT for, I don't know, 30 years or probably longer. So what do you think it is about insurance that, particularly when it's such a community business that we all know each other <laughs> and we all trade with each other, everyone knows and is a counterparty of almost everybody else. What do you think it is about our business that is taking it so long to create this almost centralized platform that we really need? I think it's a, it's a matter of attitude at the end of the day. We need to have the right attitude and understand that it may not be the perfect system, whatever we came across, but it will be better than what we have today. And I think we need to have an attitude. And uh, and we have the discussion very recently, and they said, well, on the Richley Code and the Accords, and I say, no, because here, this and that reinsurer broker saying, but it, actually this one that is new is better and say, well, it's, it may be better, but if we start changing everything every two years, we won't end up doing nothing. I remember we started with that when I started it in 1993, we were in a group that was talking about this uh, already. And today we don't have anything. So it's uh, I, I, I think we need to just decide we want to go with one of it and just advance because that's the main issue. Do you think that that time is finally coming? I think we are making good progress, at least in some markets. We are promoting it, uh, for example, here in Spain. And uh, I think there is a good, uh, we have a number of buyers that are using it, a number of brokers, and I think we are going in a, in a good direction. And I think talking a, a little bit wider, not only about reinsurance, but talking about our insurance and reinsurance industry, we need to work a lot in improving efficiencies. When you look at our accounts as insurance and reinsurers, and you need the, from the premium that we receive, how much is dedicated to cover risk and how much is dedicated to ourselves? Let it be on the channel, on the distribution, on our internal cost. It doesn't make sense. You have in some parts of the world where the distribution is costing you more than 50% of the premium just because of remunerating the channel. And then we complain at the same time that there is an insurance gap there. Yes, but uh, for people that can't afford their insurance, their insurance or can't afford things, when they say for, from the premium that we are, we are paying 50, 60, 70%, is just for distribution and administration, they start thinking, does it make sense or not? And I think there is something as an industry we need to work about. It doesn't make sense. Well, Eduardo, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. Good luck in the upcoming renewals and with everything that you're trying to do at Matfrey Re. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for the opportunity. And yes, hope to repeat soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com 
to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>